today about this being Palm Sunday. I want to just remind you about a couple things. First of all, uh, Adam did mention it, but uh, one of the we have 3,000 eggs to lay out, folks. We need help. We can't stand along the edge and just throw them because you know what happens then. It's all okay. But and then the another announcement is please pray for Miss uh, Eula. Uh, she is uh, in the hospital right now. Uh, she has fluid on her lungs. Uh, they think there's something wrong with her heart, and so uh, just uh, uh, they think she might need another stent. So right now, just keep uh, Eula and her family in prayer as she's up at Lexington right now. Um, as we consider this Palm Sunday, I'd like to open like this, thinking about the world. There's one thing in this world that nations, governments at all levels, schools, businesses, churches, community organizations, families and individuals all strive for but never really find for very long. They all strive for it. They want it. But they really can't find it for very long. Think about what that might be. How would you, what would you think that would be? You know what that one thing is? Peace. Peace. Our world today gives great testimony to that truth. There are multiple violent conflicts over land, religious beliefs, and ethnicity going on in this world right now as we speak. Social and political unrest is rampant. We can't get away from it. Every time we turn on the TV or look at Facebook or do any social media, we see the unrest. And most everyone I talk to says this, I am just tired of it. Amen? I am just tired of it. People just want some peace, and they're trying to find it wherever they can. Some try to find peace by turning themselves, uh, by turning to work and blocking everything else out. Some try to find peace through drugs and alcohol. Some try to find peace in relationships. Some even try to find peace by going off the grid. Not wanting to have contact with anybody or anything. Some try to find peace in religion. Or even what is known now as the cult of self-improvement. If I can look like this, if I can lift this much, if I can uh, post my, uh, my body on the, on the internet, uh, I will find fulfillment. I will find peace. People will affirm me. And I can work in the gym for hours and hours and hours and don't have to worry about the things around. But everyone eventually finds out that the peace they find in these endeavors is temporary at best. I call this peace a fickle peace. A fickle peace. F-I-C-K-L-E. A fickle peace. It's a peace that is constantly changing shape and location. It seems to be like water. The more you try to hold on, the more it squeezes through your fingers. And I think it's safe to say that everyone here this morning has also been on this quest for peace and has found it to be very fleeting. Even though fickle peace is fleeting and difficult to hold on to, I want to make sure that everybody understands that we are still supposed to strive for that peace. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says, Strive for peace with what? Everyone. 
But that word strive is a very strong word. It's a very active word. We need to strive for it. Why do we need to always keep striving for it? Because it's always changing. It's always fleeting. It's always fickle. But we always strive to be at peace. God wants us to pursue peace as much as possible. Paul addresses that in Romans 12, 18. He says, if possible. So what does that tell us right away? You're not in control of all of it, folks. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with what? All. Again, what's the point? We strive for this fickle peace. We try to uh, uh, bring glory to God in this fickle peace. But we also understand that it's striving as much as we can possibly do. But peace that we are to strive for here is fickle, as I said. It's not always in our control, and it will always be something that we have to work for. However, this is not the kind of peace that any of us is really looking for, is it? It's in our hearts, in our nature, to desire a peace that is permanent. A real peace that doesn't just exist for today or tomorrow or for a month. And so the question is, uh, where is real peace found? Where is real peace found? I believe we can find the answer to this question in, on this Palm Sunday in Luke's account of what is commonly known as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem just days before His crucifixion. So please turn me with, to, with me to Luke 19, and we're going to be looking at verses 41 through 44. Uh, that'll be kind of our main focus. And before we go any further, let's pray. Father God, every person here desires a peace that is solid, a peace that they can depend on, a peace that is something different than what the world has to offer. And Father, I know that every person here has struggled with finding peace. And Father, I pray that we would begin to understand that much of what we strive for is fickle. It won't bring comfort. It won't make sense of life. It makes us feel like we're just on a, in a rat race. And Father, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, as we understand some things about the triumphal entry, I pray, Lord God, that we would begin to understand where true peace comes from. In Christ's name, amen. For us to begin this, we need to set the stage as usual. Uh, there is quite a bit of stage setting here that needs to happen for us to understand what's going on. And as I said earlier, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day we celebrate as Jesus, uh, we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, he neared the culmination of his long journey towards dying on the cross. He had come into this world to save the lost, and it was now time to clearly, publicly announce that he was the predicted Messiah that had come to save us for our sins. It was time. Palm Sunday marks the beginning of what is often called the Passion Week, and I suggest that all of us would take time this week to read through the Passion Week. You'll find it in every single gospel. And each gospel presents it in a different way from a different perspective. It's all the same thing, but it would be something that we need to reflect on because we need to understand that next week is Easter. 
And that's the culminating point of Jesus' life. His obedience to His Father to come and die on the cross for our sins. But there's a lot of stuff. Actually, most of the Gospels that we read is the largest section of each of the Gospels. That's seven days. And the reason for that is because it's important. And I would highly recommend, encourage you to read through each of the Gospel accounts this week. So this Passion Week is the last seven days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And Palm Sunday was the beginning of the end of Jesus' work on earth. So as we go through Luke 19, we don't have time to read through the whole thing. But I want to just walk through it with you all and make some comments about it. So we're going to start in Luke 19, chapter uh, verse 1. We see here that Jesus is on his way to his final trip to Jerusalem, and he is entering Jericho. And from Jericho to Jerusalem is about an 18-mile trip, 15 to 18-mile trip, depending on who you read. And so he still had quite a long ways to go. Think about how long it would take you to walk 15 to 18 miles. And in verses 2 through 10, we see that on his way through Jericho, he meets a, a man named, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. So on his way through Jericho, uh, he has an encounter with Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus gets saved. Amen? In verses 11 through 27, he tells a story. He tells a parable. And he's, he, in verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was so near to Jerusalem, because they, were, uh, they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. The people who were traveling with him uh, thought that he was getting ready to set up the kingdom. That's going to play a big part in what we look at uh, in a little bit. And he's going to tell this parable, uh, what we know of as the ten minas. Basically what it says, the meaning of this parable would have been clear to the people who were with Jesus. Let's just start it just for a minute. Uh, We won't read through the whole thing. Verse 12, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and he sent a delegation after him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered his servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. So that sets it up. This normal man in the parable who is Jesus Christ, he was going to go away to receive a kingship. And when he returned, he would establish his kingdom. And until that time, his followers, the servants, were to fulfill the responsibilities he gave to them. Does that sound familiar? Did Jesus go someplace to receive his kingdom? Is Jesus going to, has Jesus given his servants, us, a, a, a job that we're supposed to do? Yes, he has. Responsibility. Then we understand that on his return, Jesus will return. He would reward the faithful according to their faithful service. This is, we see this at, later on in the parable. And that the people who did not, who were not faithful, he would judge. And those who uh, rejected his kingship, they were going to be killed. And basically what Jesus was trying to help them understand is, my kingdom is not going to start right now. There's going to be a delay. And what I'm getting ready to do and where we're going into Jerusalem for is just the start of that process in me receiving my kingdom. And so he's teaching them as they're walking along in this 15 to 18 mile trip, he was making it more and more clear that he uh, was the Messiah and that as the Messiah, he was going to die, but his death wouldn't really be the end, that he would return and set up his kingdom. Amen. 
That's what he was trying to tell them through the parable and teaching them even as he was entering Jerusalem for the last few days of his life. And then verses 28 through 36, we get, this is the part that we often call, or that is called, the triumphal entry. And as he neared Jerusalem, we must not miss what Jesus does as he enters uh, and gets close, nears Bethphage and Bethany. Let's take a look at this. And when he has said these things, that's, he's referring back to what he was teaching as he was walking. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, yet sat. Untie it and bring it there. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, it's owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began rejoicing and praising God with a loud voice. We need to not miss something here. Jesus was not just along for the ride when it came to his crucifixion and death. Jesus was in control of it. He was planning it. He's traveling from Jericho and he gets to Bethphage and he gets to Bethany and he stops. They take a break. And he, uh, they're, they're near these cities and he sends two of his disciples to do what? Get the colt. Who's setting all this up? Jesus. Who is setting up that he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a colt that has never ridden before? Jesus. He's in control. He's setting it up. He's making sure that everybody understands that he is claiming to be the Messiah. He is publicly. Up until this point in time, Jesus Christ has told demons to do what? Don't tell everybody who I am. Don't reveal who I am. He has never allowed people to bow to him as far as, uh, as the Messiah and try to make him king. He has resisted all of that. But at this point in time, as they near these two cities, he begins to say, now's the time I'm going to publicly reveal that I'm claiming to be the Messiah that you've long awaited for. He's in control. Why did he do this? Why did he do, uh, send the disciples for the cult? Because the Old Testament prophet Zechariah had prophesied that the Messiah, Jerusalem king, would come riding in on the colt of a donkey. And we see that in Zechariah 9.9. Thousands of years before, this is what Zechariah wrote. Greatly rejoice, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is saying... I am this person that Zechariah prophesied about so many hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Matthew refers to this prophecy even more clearly in his triumphal entry account. In Matthew, we find, to fulfill what was spoken of by the prophet, saying, To the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus Christ was coming and going to make sure that everybody knew that he was claiming to be this Messiah. When kings rode into a city that they were going to overthrow, they would come in on a war horse, presenting themselves as uh, the conquering king. But here Jesus presented himself as a king of peace by riding into Jerusalem 
on a donkey's colt. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a king, a humble king, a gentle king. This isn't the only place in the Bible where we see a king riding on a donkey. It wasn't like this was uh, never heard of before because Solomon, David told Solomon to go and go to his coronation riding on a what? A mule, the king's mule. It was, a, it was a sign of peace. It was a sign of gentleness, not of a conquering king. And Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, not as a conquering king, not as somebody who was going to overthrow uh, the government of Rome, which everybody was hoping for when they would see that he was the Messiah. But he's coming in as a gentle king. And we understand from this passage that uh, his disciples who were with him understood this. Look at verses 37 through 40. As he was drawing near already on the road down, the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice to the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who come in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What we understand here is that they saw this. They understood what Jesus was stating. They understood that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. And we understand that from what they were singing, from what they were rejoicing with. They were actually quoting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The first part of that verse is Psalm 118, okay, verse 26, is what they were saying here. Psalm 118 is a section, resides in the section of the book of Psalms called the Hallel Psalms. It's a whole section of Psalms that point to a coming Messiah. It was sung often by the Jews, especially at, at their various festivals. It was sung specifically as they were going up to the uh, Jerusalem. These were special psalms talking about the Messiah. And what they were saying is they, the people who were around him, the crowd, his disciples who were following him, coming from Jericho, going up through Bethphage and, and, and Bethany, what they were doing is they were saying, we see what you're saying. We are going to attribute this song to you that is written back in the psalms. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We also understand here that not only did his disciples understand what Jesus was doing, but so did the Pharisees. Look at verse 39. Look at verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop them from attributing this psalm to you. Stop them from saying that you're the answer to our desires of a Messiah. And Jesus said to them, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus was saying, now is the time. I need to be presented as the Messiah. So here we find Jesus riding on a donkey, surrounded by thousands of people singing and rejoicing. And we have to understand something. There are literally thousands of people. All the disciples that were coming from Jericho and up through uh, Bethphage and Bethany, there were thousands of people. But we find out in the other Gospels that the people in Jerusalem had also heard of his coming, and they were coming out of Jerusalem to meet him. And at this time, a, a lot of scholars believe that there would be anywhere between uh, 800,000 to a million people in Jerusalem during this Passover week. And the, they were pouring out from Jerusalem to meet Jesus. And all of them were singing and praising God because here comes the Messiah, and we know this, and we're going to sing the songs of the Messiah to celebrate it. Move on to verse 41. There's great rejoicing. There's fervor. There's celebration for the one riding on the donkey. 
But in verse 41, we see something that doesn't fit the scenario. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, What would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? But now they are hidden from your eyes. In the midst of all this celebration, in the midst of all this joy, the Messiah is here. We've seen his power in the raising of Lazarus. We've, seen his, we've heard his teaching. We've seen his other miracles. He's here. But Jesus is weeping. And this is not just Jesus quietly riding on a donkey with tears falling down his face. Jesus is weeping. This, the word here for weeping is the same type of weeping that would be done at a funeral or over the death of a loved one. In fact, we see the same word used in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And this is Peter. And he went out and wept bitterly. Same word. This is when Peter had denied Christ three times, when he said that he wouldn't. And he realized that at what he had done, he went and left the disciples, and he wept bitterly. Jesus is in the midst of this joyous occasion, riding on the donkey, being honored as the coming Messiah, weeping bitterly. That doesn't fit. Jesus was weeping bitterly over them because they were looking for a false peace. Look at verse 42. Jesus, as he was weeping, he said, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. Oh, that I wish that you would know what really what peace really means. Oh, that I wish that you would have understood what I said. And he's weeping bitterly. He's weeping bitterly. You see, the people who were crowded around him were looking for a peace just like we are today. This fickle peace. They were looking for the Messiah that was going to come and relieve them from oppression. They were looking. They thought today was the day that he's going to come into Jerusalem and overthrow the Roman government. That's their perspective. And he wept. He says, you don't get it. You've missed the point. Rome was currently their oppressor, and after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, the people saw in him the power needed to overthrow the Roman government. But that is the same kind of peace that we often look for. A peace from a situation, a peace that makes my life easier, a peace that is going to exalt me over other people. They were looking for the peace that the world offered and have rejected the peace that God was offering through Jesus Christ. And he says there in verse 42, Would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. What, what does he mean by the things that make for peace? The things that make for true peace. The things that are there that will give true peace. It's everything that Jesus had been teaching and preaching over the last three years. Repentance and faith in Him for the forgiveness of sins that would bring real peace to their lives. Peace with God. Jesus was weeping because he knew their judgment was coming and it would be very severe. Oh, this is such a sad part of this portion of God's word. Look at verse 43. Actually, just before 43. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Those things that make for true peace are now hidden from their eyes. They had been presented with it. They had been taught it. They had, been, they had seen it in Jesus Christ and they had rejected it. 
They didn't want the peace he was offering. They wanted the peace that they thought should happen. They wanted the peace Jesus Christ rule. How often do, does Christ offer us something and we want something different? And we're going to find later on that these same people, we're going to look at this next week, the same people who are sitting here in joy and exaltation and singing scripture to him, uh, there's going to be the same people who are crying out for his crucifixion because he didn't meet their demands. How often do we turn our backs on Jesus because he doesn't meet our, command, our, our demands? So what kind of peace is Jesus offering the crowds? An eternal peace with God. He wasn't offering a political peace with their enemies. He wasn't offering a social peace in a fractured Israel. The peace that Jesus offered to them and to us was a peace between mankind and God. That is the peace we need. That is the peace that is never going to change. It's going to be solid. It'll be there for all of eternity. We will never find that kind of peace on this planet, period. We are to strive for peace. We are to work for peace. We are to uh, try to be at peace with everybody that we come into contact with. But we have to understand it's a fickle peace and it will never last. The only peace that will ever last is the relationship we have with God because of salvation through Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus Christ was presenting, a peace because we have been reconciled with God through his death. And this is what that was beginning at the triumphal entry. He was making this statement. The peace Jesus offered to them and to us was peace between mankind and God, as I said. Before Christ, we were enemies of God, trapped in our own sins. While we were still sinners, Jesus sacrificed himself for the sake of our reconciliation with God. And we see that in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were sinners, or excuse me, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Where do we find our reconciliation with God? Through whom? Jesus Christ. Through the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. That's what we celebrate next week. The resurrection of Jesus. He is risen from the dead. We were reconciled to God from our sins through His death. And we're going to have eternal life because He is also risen from that very same death. Amen? When we put our faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are made right with God. Romans 5.11, we see Paul saying again, Therefore, since we have been justified, since we have been made right with God by faith, we have peace with God through whom? Jesus Christ and no one else. We have peace with God. That is the peace that means something. That is the eternal peace of God that will never change. We have peace with God when we were once his enemies. Amen? And that peace will lead us to an eternity with him, to an inheritance with Jesus Christ, and for an eternity of singing praises to him with people from every tribe and nation. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, because He saved us and we have a relationship with God Himself. The eternal peace with God that Jesus made possible through His death and resurrection is fundamentally different than the peace we often find ourselves striving for. Take a look at what we see in John 14. Peace I leave with you. This is Jesus. He says, I'm going to leave you peace. I'm going to leave you my peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. My peace is different. It is an eternal peace. Is it a permanent peace? It's not a fickle peace. Not as the world do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Don't be afraid. The peace I have, 
given you is peace with God. And no matter what happens in this life, we are secure in our relationship with God because we have peace through it with Him through Jesus Christ. This peace He gives or offers is not based in situations or on things that we have. So much of our fickle peace that we strive for is based on, I want peace in this situation. I, I'm going to go find another job because I'm looking for peace in my job because the job I have right now, my boss is a jerk. And I am looking for peace. And so I'm going to go to another job and try to find peace. And often those people are what? They're looking for another job so they can find peace. But they never seem to be able to find peace. I'm going to uh, divorce my wife or my husband because we don't have peace in the home. And I'm going to go find peace someplace else with somebody else. And what do they find? No peace. These things that we have, so much invested in trying to gain the peace of the world will never bring us peace. It is only through Jesus Christ can we have the true peace of reconciliation from God. It's not based, this peace that Jesus offers is based in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. We see this beginning all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9. It says, For unto us a child is born. Who is that child? Jesus. To us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Especially in those days, when somebody, when a name, when his name is the Prince of Peace, what does that say about that person? This is who he is, not just what we call him. He is the Prince of Peace. This is his being. It's part of who he is. He is the Prince of Peace. This child that was born that is now riding on a donkey, getting ready to enter Jerusalem. He is the Prince of Peace. This peace is found in this person or through this person. We also find in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is what? Our peace. Who is our peace? Jesus Christ. He himself, Jesus Christ. He is our peace. Not what he's brought to us, it's him. It's who he is, it's what he is. He is our peace, who has made us both one. He has brought uh, the Jews and the Gentiles together in the context of, of Ephesians 2.14. But we see that he is, as a people, our peace. It is in a person, not in an event, not in a situation, not in something that we have. It is in him. That's what makes this peace so much different that he offers and then in Colossians 19, 1, 19 through 24, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself. Again, this idea that this Jesus is reconciling us to God. To himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, what? Making peace by what? His blood, the blood of his cross. What brings the peace that he's offering? His death on the cross. What repairs our relationship with God? His death on the cross. What removes the wrath of God from, our, from us? His death on the cross. That is how he reconciled us. He reconciled us to God through his death on the cross. Go all the way back, commenting and looking at the Colossians passage, Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That's where we find our peace, through Jesus Christ. It's in him and in no place else. We will not find peace anywhere else. 
on this planet. There is nothing you can do. There is no job you can have. There is no relationship you can do. There is no sexual identity that you can claim that will bring you peace on this earth. It is only through belief in Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the fact that His death on the cross repaired our relationship with God, reconciled us to God, and brings peace to our lives with a God who would have been wrathful towards us. As we think about this on this day, this Palm Sunday, Jesus is riding on that donkey, presenting Him. They see Christ as a provider of peace, but a peace that the world had, a peace that would not be lasting. They wanted peace from the Roman Empire. They wanted peace from oppression. They wanted liberty. They wanted liberation. And they wanted that so much that they ignored the peace that he was truly offering. The peace that brings a good relationship, a right relationship with God our Father. A peace that we would have with him because Jesus Christ's death on the cross provided a payment for our sin. Amen? Let me ask you a question. Where do you find your peace today? Remember, Jesus, in the midst of all of this, was weeping. Jesus understood the mistake they were making. Jesus, if we go back to that, he was weeping because he understood the judgment coming. Look at verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not understand what I was saying. And the peace that you're looking for, the peace in Jerusalem that you're looking for, is all going to be destroyed. It's, there's not going to be one stone left stacked upon another. That is the peace that you were searching for, and that is the peace that is going to give you judgment. Jesus was weeping because he saw the judgment they were going to go through. He knew the judgment they were going to go through. And that they would ultimately, in just a few days, reject him and the offer of the true peace. They were only looking for the peace of the world. He was offering them peace with God Almighty. Are you looking for peace in the world today? Are you looking for peace in the world today? In friendships, in status, in job, in what you own, in the material things of your life? In accolades you get from working really hard or because you work in the community very hard? Those things will all pass away. That peace will be gone. Maybe tomorrow, maybe in six months, maybe in ten years. But it will leave you stranded with nothing but judgment if you don't understand the peace that Christ is giving you through God, to, through His death to God. As we go into this Passion Week, take some time with your families. Sit down, read through the the, the gospel accounts of the transfiguration. Ask yourself, where do I really find peace in this world? Where do I hang my life and the desire for peacefulness? Where do I hang that on the wall? Do I hang it on this world and what the world says, or do I hang it on what Jesus Christ did on the cross? Bow your heads for just a minute. Take just a minute and ask yourself this. Do I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have peace with God. Not because of what I do or what I have done or what kind of person I have, but I have peace with God because I understand who Jesus Christ is. Ask yourself that. If you're not sure, if you're not sure that you have peace with God, which is a peace that will never leave, 
that you can base the rest of your life on, knowing that he is, you are his and you belong to him, knowing that there's an inheritance, knowing that Jesus Christ has died for you. If you don't have a peace that comes from knowing that you have a right relationship with God, I ask that you would come and talk to me after this service. I'll be up here up front, or Pastor Adam will be at the back. We would love to help you understand even more about how Jesus Christ is offering peace to everyone who would have faith in Him. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, yes, I know I am right with God. I know that I have, uh, He is my peace. I understand that uh, I am not the focus of His wrath, but I still try to find peace in the things of this world. I try to find it in family or through activities or in job or in relationship. I've become too focused on the peace that this world offers. If you are there, you say, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I have peace with God. But I still am trying to focus on the peace of the world. Now is time. Now is a good time for you to sit back and pray and just say, Lord God, I'm sorry that I lost my focus on the peace that really matters. Pray that. Ask for forgiveness and praise Him in a real way for the peace that you do have through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, as we come to you this morning, we thank you so much for the life that you have given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord God, that we have a right relationship with you because we have accepted the salvation that Jesus Christ provided through His death on the cross and in just a few days through His resurrection. We thank you, Lord God, that even though we live in a world that is racked by violence, with, racked with uncertainty, constantly changing, no place to set our feet for a sense of peace, that, Father, we can set our feet on the rock of Jesus Christ, the cornerstone. We ultimately have peace with you and life eternity with you because of that peace. Thank you, Father, for this. In Christ's name, amen.